Caution. Learning in progress. Welcome back to Smarter Every Season podcast. I am your host this time. My name is Freya Watson, and I've got Tyler, who we all know and love, um, Tyler Huber, and Alan Huber. So as we were uh, getting ready for this episode, um, we were all taking notes on, on questions. And it's, it's funny, Alan takes notes on the computer, very um, high-tech. Tyler says he's an old man because he takes notes on paper, generally with a pen, and I feel like a youth because I also take pa- take notes on paper, but I like using a pencil so I can erase things. Is it somewhere in between if you take notes on an iPad? Like you still handwrite them with an Apple pen, but you take them on an iPad? I feel like that's particularly Gen Z. Is, right, is doing it on an iPad? Yeah. Well, I always get these confused. Gen Z would be like I think I'm, I think I'm millennial. Yeah. When does Gen Z start? Would that be younger than me? I think Gen Z, the easiest way would say, be born after or on two thousand. Your two thousand is like the split. Like okay. if you were born in the last century, you're. Oh, so when you say Gen Z, it's like twenty three and younger almost. Yeah. Could be that like twenty twenty yeah. to twenty. Yeah. Oh wait a minute, two thousand to twenty twenty yeah. time yeah. frame. Got it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't know. I don't hang around with that many. Yeah. I'm I'm like right on the edge because I was I was born in 95. Okay. Well, let's me, keep it moving here, Fred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I was just the 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 Huber Hubert introduction. Alan and I like to make jokes and I think it's probably only funny to the two of us, but um the letter T at the end was kind of what split our families, I think. <laughs> there was a disagreement between some wanted to keep the tea, some did not, and that's kind of where our families just went two different directions. This is hundreds of years ago, um, but uh, that that joke just came back to my mind when Freya did the introduction. It's uh, it's probably one that's going to continue on. I think in our tenure and our careers, it's it defines us, Tyler. Our <laughs> names, our, our our names. What's in a name? Until we find out a better story, I think that's what we're going to go with. What yeah. about our new guy, Kyle Herbert? We don't Horbert. We, we don't acknowledge him. He's not. He was not part of the lineage. <laughs> okay. I think. I don't know. <laughs> too many letters different. <laughs> Just one Just too a, many. <laughs> well, it, no, actually, that's a good point. To uh, we are on a podcast here that is intended for the audience of our dealer network. So, um, just so that everybody's aware, we have a Huber, we have a Hubert, and we have a Herbert. Or Horbert. I, I, I don't know which way, way he actually pronounces it. Feels like a podcast episode. <laughs> Kyle, take us all through how we should. Nevertheless, um, just probably is something good for everybody to be aware of, that we're not trying to fool anybody when we say those last names. We, we have some last names on the support team now that are all very, very close together. Dan over in our facilities team came upstairs last week, and he's like, hey, Alan, I, I got this for you. And he brought up a bracket for mounting a computer screen. And I was like, my I don't need any brackets. My computer screens are great. I said, you know what? I bet you're looking for Tyler. And he goes, oh, Hubert. Yeah, that's probably it. And so we walked over to Tyler's desk, and Tyler goes, no, I'm, I'm good to go. And I, it kind of clicked. I was like, you know what? This is the first of many mistakes. I said, Kyle, are you over there? Yeah. You got a display that needs mounting? Yeah. You're looking for Horbert. <laughs> <laughs> so He's really got a one in three chance. Yeah. Unfortunately for poor Dan, he just went through the, the wrong two options first. Yeah. But 
It's gonna it's <laughs> gonna happen. I agree. Very good. Uh, diving into can training now. Um, we just want to go over some some key points with you. I didn't get to go to the can training because I was teaching another session. Um, so, what were your key takeaways? So, Tyler and I had a chance to do a lot of the the background on this. You know, we did a lot of planning going into this session. Um, Joel, Clay, Dylan. You know, those are kind of the the five guys on our team for can training. And you know, our key takeaways, I think very much illustrated in how we laid out class. And so one of the one of the hard things that I think can systems bring is the fact that when something starts to not work, it can cause a lot of headaches. You know, that that system is a fine-tuned machine and when something doesn't work all of the time, that's downtime and downtime costs us money, costs us frustration. It it it's hard to have those conversations when it's 55 degrees out and the neighbors planting and everything else uh, should be going smoothly, and it can't because of your issue. Um, so I, I don't know. I think our key takeaways, Tyler, really come down to making sure that we're gathering good information, but that information has to build on a foundation of how does that CAN system work? When I have the background knowledge of what's supposed to be happening, it really allows us to filter out the noise of what's going on in a planter. There's a million things happening, and so really, you know, looking at what's actually being displayed, maybe not even on the, on the diagnose page or the home screen, what's being displayed in this planter right now that can lead us to uh, a solution. One of the big takeaways that I remember, just to kind of let everybody behind the curtain, when we were September, August, kind of in the planning phases, I go back to a comment you made, which was, can is not random. That was one of the big things that I feel like we wanted to show. And I mentioned this a little bit at training, but when we did the conclusion... But we kind of started out thinking through, like, how do we show intermittent issues? Something where it's not actively happening. Maybe it pops up every 30 seconds, or we can use our stands to recreate planting, but then stop the stand, and it doesn't happen. Well, I mean, kind of what I think we, we found through the planning process of that is that's not super efficient when you have people in-house. And it's not always super replicable mm -mm. either. And so we, what we really wanted to lean into was when a problem is actively happening, how do we isolate that down to find the one component that's causing a problem? And a lot of our stands, I think, were built around trying to uh, kind of, I would probably say even like debunk the notion of, well, I saw this one time and it was random. And I think it's hard to disagree with somebody's experience around that, but what we wanted to lean into is there are times where it may feel that way, but here's why it's not. Uh, and so I, I hope that that was one of the key takeaways is that it's not random. It doesn't mean that we can't get into some instances where it's not easy to diagnose, um, but it's not random. And I, that, that was one of the takeaways that kind of came to my mind uh, when Freya asked that question. And that's what led us into that, that first 30 minutes of our session. You know, I, we went through a case study on a 24-hour planter. Um, I even said that in a handful of the classes. So if, if you weren't in one of the classes that has happened, um, in several of the classes, I took the hard stance and I said, can is not random and it cannot move. Um, but I followed it up immediately with, but I know that everyone here has had a random moving <laughs> issue, right? Because yeah. it feels like that sometimes, especially when it's this, it, here's what I've been told is happening. And I went out there and I couldn't replicate it. And then two days later it happened again, but this time it was on a different row. Um, that's probably one of the, 
most common interactions I think we had during our session uh, were those one-off conversations, not part of the training itself necessarily, but during our, our four rotations of those training stands, um, there was a lot of guys that said, hey, how can it, you know, how could this have happened? Explain their scenario. It moved from this row to that row. Now, one of the downsides to that is a lot of times we're talking about things that might have happened a year or two years ago or, um, or you know, never actually found a solution because by the time they got there, it just never happened again. Um, but there was a lot of conversations where guys kind of had that, where I saw this happening, and actually, now that you're saying this, I bet it was this, this, or this. It made, it, made a change, yeah. and now that the dots are being connected, I think this is what I actually fixed. I don't know how many times you saw this, but I know there was a number of times at the stand that I was working through where you would get to the resolution or get very close to it, and you'd have a buddy lean over to somebody and say, that's what happened on so-and-so's planner. Exactly, yeah. There was tons of, and then we, we kind of thought about that ahead of time, too, where, um, you know, keeping guys within their groups. Yeah. There's a lot of those shoulder-to-shoulder conversations where it's, aha, here's what I think we need to go try when we get back home. Or yeah. here's what probably happened last year. Um, that's probably maybe one of the downsides of having training during the middle of winter, but I don't think anyone would come to training if we had it in April or May. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So. On the thought of takeaways, too, I think I, I want to pass this on. Um, I had mentioned um, the ice, the idea of isolating and, and replicating. Um, uh, for a lot of our stands, replicate means try to get the issue to come back up. For a lot of our stands, when you walked right up to the stand, there was an issue actively happening. So I think how to isolate uh, or the idea of isolation was a big piece of the takeaways we wanted. Now, without getting into each stand and talking through what it did and how we isolated it down, Isolation could have been used by moving a terminator, um, isolating to one CAN network, isolating to one backbone, using a row plug, and isolating down to one row. There were many different ways with which we did that. Oming out the CAN network, right, or moving that along uh, um, CAN high and CAN low across the backbone. There were many different ways to do that that make it very difficult to try to talk through, yeah. all right, in an, in an audio format. Um but I think that was our that was one of the takeaways. The big takeaways we wanted was can is not random, and here are some of the ways that we employ isolation methods to get down to aha, boom. This is the component that's causing my problem. Yeah. So on on my stand in particular, if you guys remember it or came to that session, you know I had a four row system set up on a board, and all the wires were exposed, and and lots of them were broken. Uh, right in front of your face, right? You know, a lot of guys walk up, oh, I, I, I know what the issue is. I see it right here. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. That wire is totally cut in half. Um, let's prove it, though. You know, let's talk through why that's causing what you're seeing. Uh, but some of the other, you know, the takeaways from it that, that we talked a lot on um, came down to there's a lot going on here, but we also have a ton of redundancy. And I made the kind of the tongue-in-cheek comment that um, – this is a four-row planter with V-Drive Delta Force only, the simplest planter I think anyone could ever work on. But really, there's 15 things that are interacting with the CAN network that could be displaying what we're seeing right now. And one of the downsides to that is there's a lot going on still, even on a, you know, think about a 24-row planter, even a 16-row planter. But there's also a lot of benefit there. You've got four other rows, or I should say you've got four uh Four repeated systems, right? If every row has V-Drive on it, that means I've got three other V-Drives to compare this one V-Drive that not, you know, it's not doing what I think it should. Um, and so, yeah, we ohmed out 
our, our network, we talked through how to, from a technical standpoint, understand what was happening. But then I also like to have the conversation of, there's a lot of other things that I could do faster to keep a guy rolling that are very basic. Mm -hmm. You know, intentionally moving something while he's filling up with seed and then seeing what happens down the road. Yep, we've got an issue on this row harness here. Um, now, obviously, the ones that are black and white, the majority of the calls I think most dealers get are, this is not happening, check, 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 ah, go change this or replace that, you're good to go again. Um, but our class really wanted to focus on those those ghosts, those gremlins, those those really painful ones where it doesn't seem to be repeatable. Those are the hard phone calls. Yeah. Your comment there made me think about it too. Um, when ohming out the CAN network, 120 ohms of resistance is healthy. Plus or minus five, I believe is kind of what we go by. Yeah, I don't know, 10% sometimes just, just thrown out there. Just so everybody keeps that in the back of yeah. their mind. Yeah. So you guys talked about gremlins and, and the CAN um, the can network or errors do not change. They don't move around even though it seems like it. Um, and you and you said you started out with 30 minutes of an example that was really impactful for us as a team working with dealer and engineer to figure out, right? Um, was there any other conversation that our dealers may have um, given an example in one class that would be great to share with anyone who wasn't there that you can think of? Yeah, I, I guess kind of I mentioned maybe a little bit already just in, in terms of, you know, these types of classes, and I think it probably applies to all of our training sessions. You know, take liquid, for example. I mean, everyone has an example of something that didn't work right. And so a lot of these uh, example boards, uh, some of the pump stations that, you know, the, the track that we have in the dirt, we're actually looking at inferro creation. Those are based on conversations that we've had with our dealers already. And so, you know, we're already we're already kind of teaching a little bit or preaching to the choir in some case. Um, so hopefully the class is not just a, a rehash of, yes, I've, I've fixed a planter like this in the past. It's more of a confirmation that um, making sure that we're doing things in the right order, you know, when, when we're checking for seed or looking at the diagnose page for certain feedback. That was one of the struggles I think Tyler, you and I had on that 24-row planter at the beginning. You know, we had this 24-row intermittent issue that ended up being – a couple of engineers as well as the dealer and uh, it was a couple days back and forth of having that grower try something um, and at the end of the day it was it was very uh, very much just a physical fix you know one speed two module was causing a lot of headache but because it wasn't happening all of the time it took some repeated okay let's make a change and see what happens and there were several things that kind of compounded it in terms of the, the can booster he had a rain delay and he had potential other things going on. Um, but really, when you look back through everything that they saw and did, nothing ever moved. There were times where entire, you know, the entire Furrowforce diagnose page didn't display sometimes. But one of the comments I think I make quite a bit is it, it wasn't ever that that speed tube module was showing up on a different row as a different product doing something wrong. And that's kind of the 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 dividing factor of things can't move whereas like on an analog system you add a little bit of voltage in and suddenly converting that four and a half volts to five and a half volts 
we get extra yield on the yield sense monitor, you know, something like that. So just to jog everybody's memory too, if, if you didn't make it or, you know, if you did and it's been a, a few weeks, uh, as Alan kind of alluded to, you started with a case study um, where we went through a very difficult to solve, candidly, difficult to solve scenario. And I think for us, the goal in doing that was we're going to go through this very in-depth or, or more dif difficult scenario, but it's still that process of isolation and replication that led us to this. So if we can figure out or solve that 1% or 1% of a 1%, I think I said, is a very rare issue by doing this form of isolation, we can certainly apply this to all other can and daisy chain issues. That was kind of the, one of the takeaways I think that we wanted from from doing that. But just so everybody was aware, that's that's what it was. I mean, in this case study, we had some component, which we ended up finding was a speed tube module, taking down the CAN network, and basically it looked like a planner-wide gap on a population map. Yeah, and the level at which it was being errant um, wasn't always the same. So that's what kind of threw a wrench in things. You know, he, he started out with, you know, sometimes he'd get this planner-wide gap lift switch speed, you know, those are some of the easy ones to go to. Go back and dig, he's got seed in the ground. And then sometimes throughout the day, he would get what looked like random V drives not planting. Uh, it was just lost packets of data. You know, there was so much extra garbage from that one speed tube module that sometimes the Gen 3 was saying, hey, I don't know which row this is coming from. I don't know what to do right here. I'm not going to make it up. I'm just not going to paint anything for you. And a lot of that extra... Um, vagueness was being compounded by the fact that that can booster was kind of hiding which row it was coming from. Um, and then even after getting rid of that can booster and splitting that network in half, you know, then he started seeing, and I shouldn't say started seeing, then that helped started to clarify, okay, it's on the, the right half of the planter. When this mistake is happening, we're losing that whole can B network, narrowing things down. And so one of the takeaways that, that I had with my session, one of my small breakaways kind of going back to that 24-row planter was, you know, if we can be really familiar with how the 2020 is supposed to be interacting with the CAN network and how that data moves back and forth, um, that might not point to whichever row that speed tube module is on and exactly what's happening, but that allows us to know, okay, that's not how this is supposed to work. Let's make a change in what's supposed to happen with that physical change. Does the issue continue to happen? Does it, quote-unquote, move now that I've made a physical change? Now that's what allows us to, to look between the lines. You know, here's what's supposed to be happening, and when it's not, what variables have been changed? Yep. So breaking down your can training, we had the, the big 24-row planter that we talked about, the Speed 2 module, Alan, you said you had a four-row um, stand, oming out, checking um, what our ohm should be. I know that um, we had another stand, and I don't remember how many rows it was, that was looking at daisy chains, how we um, go about finding where a daisy chain break yeah. is. Um, Tyler, I don't exactly remember what your stand was. I know it was a lot of rows and a lot of modules. <laughs> <laughs> What do you have any key takeaways on that? So I had a 32 row stand that was split can. Uh, and actually, what happened? I was trying to recreate kind of an initial install scenario uh, where one row harness was actually bad. Uh, but what had happened was that was on row seven, and in a split can application, what we saw was 
The 2020 communicated with rows one through six and then stopped because it assumed that was the end of the CAN bus and then jumped to the second CAN network. So when we initially start the scenario, rows one through 22 are green because it's one through six plus what is physically 17 through 32 on the planner. Mm -hmm. But CAN B got shoved over the top of some of the rows on A because uh, it was an initial detection. Um, so the way we still found that was isolating it down. I kind of wanted guys to have a takeaway of you. We took it down to one CAN network, then one backbone, then one row, and that's how we got to our faulty component. Um, so I, however you kind of want to describe that, I think it might have been labeled as a 32-row split CAN in the workbook, but that was kind of the takeaway that I, I wanted um, was just, okay, first of all, let's be aware this can happen on a split CAN application. Um, and this is the, still the way that isolation method is still the way we go about finding it. Yeah. And then, uh, clay had that, that side rest bar set up with two, I actually forget if it was two modules or two harnesses that were experiencing daisy chain breaks. So kind of giving, you know, here's what happens when you know, you're trying to do that, some of that isolation and it feels like things are moving around because there's another unknown damage component that's kind of throwing a wrench in things. And how do I, you know, how do I figure that out what do i know and again it kind of goes back to this was supposed to happen and it didn't it's not because we're randomly producing bad data it's something else now has to be identified uh, my four row stand kind of showed that a little bit too you know we started out with a power issue and then you know understanding how power was fed through the system we then could kind of fix that and get into a okay now power's all there but i'm getting can communication issues and through isolation we then find a daisy chain break, which is also, you know, going to compound that I can't put new stuff on to figure out, like, you know, to put my can issue on pause. Now we got to go back to figuring out what the daisy chain is. So kind of the, the compounding or the additional three different things, you know, three different pretty large breaks. And that's pretty realistic. You know, if you look at a backbone harness, what are the chances you only damage power or only damage your daisy chain, or only damage your CAN system. That backbone has all three of those things in it in one, and if you break that or pinch it in a fold point, you'd be very lucky if you only had one of those three things get, get damaged. So it's not uncommon to have two systems that play together, you know, power and, and CAN communication, they play together, but they're technically separate, right? You've got power to turn things on, you've got CAN communication to talk to them. Um, so having both of those and understanding, you know, where am I, where am I actually spending the right time, fixing the right components first? Was there anything memorable sticking out to you? Just to finish up here. So I would say one thing that came to my mind too, and in, in one of Alan's answers a little bit ago was, don't put a can booster on a Gen three. Um, anytime you have can harnessing that exceeds a hundred and thirty foot of length, you do need a can booster. So there may still be times on a Gen 2 you need it. I think that it's not so much that the second you plug that booster in, you're going to have problems. It's that you are much better off splitting the CAN network, and so you can avoid exceeding that 130 foot on a CAN, on a Gen 3, excuse me, by splitting that CAN network. Mm -hmm. Thus, you should never need to use a CAN booster. Yeah, because I know we had couple of conversations with dealers over the last few weeks where it was, you know, I've got uh, this, this huge DB120 or, mm -hmm. or something like that, or I've got so many products going on. Um, you know, it's, I can't get below that. Well, actually, 
you know, yeah, here, if, if we look at how those backbones are routed, we can get you just below that by splitting that into two or even three networks yeah. if needed. And that's 130 foot per can network. Correct. And that starts over at the hitch. Yep. So if I basically count from at the hitch to the end of A, and let's say I have 80 foot, 85 foot, excuse me, worth of harnessing, and then I go to can B, and I have another 65 foot from the hitch to the end of B, those aren't added together. Those Correct. are each unique. Yeah. I'm trying to not exceed that 130 per can network. So that was something that came to my mind when you were talking. The other thing, too, that came up um, that I think is kind of good to pass on, there were a handful of dealers that asked about using dielectric grease and what our recommendation would be on that. I think largely that we kind of came to, we don't really have any concerns with using dielectric grease. That's fine uh, for the sake of protecting connections. Where we see guys start to get into problems is when they really glob it on. So I, I think what I would pass on is you really don't need anything more than a, a light film to kind of cover connections on that but uh, that was something that came up quite a bit yeah it's a lot of the the negatives around some of those electrical cleaners and stuff like dielectric grease really comes because um guilty myself and in some areas where it's like you know if the little's good a lot must be better <laughs> that's not that's not the goal of what that product is supposed to be doing it's supposed to be keeping things lubricated and clean you know a nice good seal on that rubber um uh, o-ring around that you know that deutsch connection that's good use of it when you just squirt it into the connection and then put the two together so it's you know, oozing out the sides. Yeah. It's kind of that whole, you know, if, if a little's good, a lot must be better. That's not the case. You know, you don't want to be squirting it in there so that when you put the two connections together, it's just it's oozing out the sides. And you're going to start collecting dirt, debris, and that's where we start to get pins crossing and, and voltage issues and things like that. Yeah, I think that's Clay made mention in one of the sessions that if you kind of glob on the dielectric grease, and then let a connector hang on the planter for a while in a dusty environment, it basically turns into concrete, right? Uh, so just be aware of that, I think, is another thing to kind of pass on. Okay. Is there any more um, things dealers brought up? I think the last thing, Freya, that I would pass on to is just thanks for the dealers who came to training this year. Um, I know there are some challenges that, that some folks can't make it. We totally get that. Uh, it was really good to see everybody that came through this year. We had four full sessions of training this year which is awesome uh so i think just thanks for coming to the dealer yeah. network thanks for for the dealers who who came and thanks for listening in to our podcast we really try to to get you guys um relevant information so with that thought also stay tuned for our shop hacks um that we are doing at the end of these episodes and um, look forward to our next training refresher training podcast that we're going through. Tyler, do you remember what the next one will be? I think the next one is the hydraulic and electrical theory class. Okay. So another probably with Hans and he's always great to have. Absolutely. So yeah, again, thanks for listening and you'll hear us again. So now I was able to wrangle Luke Cure into the podcast studio during dealer training. Luke is from Colorado. His dealership is Farm Rain, which it's on your name badge, but I, that's actually one I did know ahead of time. So I think you're just going to have to trust me on that one. But tell me a little bit about where you guys are at in Colorado. Give me a little background on the dealership. 
Sure. So Northeast Colorado, um, the way I like to explain it is if you follow the state line between Nebraska and Kansas into Colorado, we're like seven miles uh, west of that point. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, it's I like to joke that it's the we're farming in the high desert. You know, we don't get much we don't <laughs> get much rain. And and especially this year is pretty tough. Um, but uh, we stretch into Kansas and uh, Nebraska as well. Um, and then on up to the front range. You know, the foothills, the mountains are um, mostly northern Colorado. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I started farming back in November 2011. Uh, I think we jumped into precision planting with Stacy Bandoni in 2013. Sure. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, Stacy was the kind of region manager That's right. uh, of that area at that time. Yeah. So you and I have talked a little bit about kind of what I'm trying to do, pulling in some dealers here during training, is, is get a feel for what shop hacks that guys use. So um, what you got? So um, I, th- I think the, 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 the most clear thing that, that I have to, to bring to the table is actually something I can't take uh, credit for. Okay. Uh, Luis Yanez. Shout out to Luis. He, he's my guy that takes care of things at, uh, in the shop at our place. Um, so he came up with this bracket, and, and actually we, we use uh, Adam, and, and I'm going to butcher his name here, but uh, Berkshevik. Uh, but, um, it, he's got those, uh, those kits where you can make sure you get all of the, uh, uh, hydraulic fittings lined up on the Delta Force cylinder. Okay. Um, so those come from Adam. Somebody else brought that up to me and wasn't sure who the dealer was. I think it's, and I, I shouldn't even try this cause I'm probably going to butcher it too. I think it's Bajerkveld. Okay. I think is how you pronounce it. Um, if um, Adam's listening, he's probably s- screaming at me too, but anyway, yeah. he's the one who makes that kit. But just so everybody knows too, he's out of Minnesota. Yeah. Um, a great guy. Um, and, and learned a lot from him and, and I apologize. <laughs> I, I know I got his name wrong and I, I just <laughs> going to apologize for it, but we really appreciate those kits. But just to take that one step further, what, uh, what Luis does is he's got a little bracket where he'll put a couple of cylinders into place and then, um, we just do all of the Delta cylinder, like, like four row sections before the planter ever hits. And so we just, we lay them on the ground and, and they're all set up. So then when that planter comes in, um, whether we need to put Delta brackets on or not, once, once that's ready, we just drop that set of Delta cylinders in place. But it's all hosed and everything. Exactly. Exactly. So that just speeds that up so much. And it's so much easier to get it straight on our little bracket. Um, you get the hoses perfectly straight, you get the, the, the yellow bands all in the right spot, you know, you make it look clean and nice and then, and then it's ready. And then you just drop that into place, drop the pins in and it just really speeds up that, that Delta process while keeping it really clean. And so I can't picture this bracket, but I've had somebody bring it up to me before. It, it must, the challenge that I've run into before too, is you put on the hoses, but you don't pin the bottom of the cylinder. So you almost have to like push the cylinder back so it's it's leveraged against the bar. So I'm guessing this also gives you a way to get leverage to actually get those tight without them being installed yet. That's a really good point. So um, there's pins both top and bottom on our bracket. Okay. So, so this cylinder is held ah, firm. Okay. I, and, and, you know, just, just for that installation process, getting that perfectly straight. And then I like to joke at our shop, like, if, if there are no leaks when we test Delta, 
there's there's a pizza for lunch on Friday, <laughs> right? If there's no leaks, and there, you know, we're talking to dealers here. There's there's tons of opportunity to have leaks on a Delta system, and so if you have no leaks, that's a big win. So obviously, the efficiency then comes in, not just cleaning up the mess, but of like. If there are no leaks, now we've got a planter that's ready to go a lot faster. So you're almost kind of encouraging guys to double check it, look it over. Absolutely. Yeah. If, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's more than just the celebration of getting pizza. There's actually yeah, there's some, to be some, there's some pride. You know. Okay. So one thing we really try to do is make clean planters. Like it doesn't it doesn't add to the guy's economic standpoint, right? But it, it matters. A guy, you know, it, a guy wants to kind of be proud of what he's got on the farm, you know, and, and, you know, some guys matters more to you than others, but we try to make clean planters. We try to make them look good. And this helps us a lot. And, and honestly, credit to Luis Yanez because um, he's a big reason why our planters look the way they do. And, and he came up with this deal on his own. I mean, I just came into the shop and it was done. Cool. And, and this, and it just, it just helps us to, um, quickly get that Delta system onto that planter and it's clean and typically there's no leaks, which, you know, that's less cleanup. That's less wiping the planter down. That's running around tightening fittings. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. Screaming, waving your arms. No, we, <laughs> you know, we got oil, hydraulic oil going all over the place yep. and you get that on your clothes and it never comes out. Right. Mama wants you to strip at the door because mm-hmm. that, that, that stuff, that's rough. Don't even come in with that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Been there. Yep. What else? Um, so I think that's our biggest thing in the shop. I, th- I think some other things that we've done um, is, uh, like, logistically, like, uh, you know, making absolutely sure that we have everything coming for a project. And then when that stuff comes in, it goes to its own shelf. I personally, we're kind of running out of space in our shop, so I, I actually rent um, storage containers. Okay. And I bought a bunch of shelving from uh, Uline. Yeah. Uh, that wire shelving stuff. And so I actually have like a grower's project on his own shelf and it's just, it's all there ready to go so that when that planter comes in, we go grab that shelf worth of stuff and we know it's all there. We, t- we take it to the shop and we, and we get to work. So logistically, that's a, that's a big problem for us, making sure it's all right and it's all there so that when we, the planter comes in, we get it done, we get it back out. Right, trying to be efficient about shop time, because because these this day and age, and even before this day and age, you could you could make a mistake on on like my end and not have everything there, and that that planter can sit there for two weeks waiting on stuff, and it's just not efficient for your shop time. Yep. yep. Right. So that's a that's a big thing I try to really work on is make sure that we have everything we need, so when it's go time, we get the planter in, we get it done get it back out and it's and it's better for cash flow for your business too right because then you can bill for it sorry so i agree with you but i want to know take me through that a little bit so what is the process then if you do put all the growers parts on a shelf but you're short something um how do you communicate that what is that kind of process look like with the customer or even with your 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 staff so i guess when we do quotes um we have everything listed out and unless it's a full planter build, that's, that's kind of a different deal. But, uh, even then we have kind of an internal quote where we have every piece in that planter. And then we have an external quote where it's, this is a planter, this is the price so that, so we don't muddy the waters there. Okay. Um, I guess we, we try to quote against John Deere as, you know, when, 
and and Deere is probably our biggest competitor, but John Deere is going to be a 16-row planner with XYZ. We have a 16-row planner with XYZ. Okay, so we're, we try to we try to be apples to apples when it comes to quoting that way. But anyways, um, say it's a, a retrofit. We'll do the quote. Okay, so when I get a, a signed quote, I hand that off to my guy, which I've, I've delegated this to uh, Ruben, where he okay. he takes that quote, and we're like, okay, let's go get everything we have on the shelf, and then tell me what we don't have. Let's get it ordered. When that comes in, it's got that customer's name on that PO for that stuff that hasn't, you know, isn't already set aside for that person. When that customer stuff comes in, we have a pile where, okay, this this project is ready. We can ask that customer to bring that planter in. Or, you know what, actually, this this can take us back one step, but uh, we got a retriever trailer by Best Way. Okay. Has anybody mentioned this? No. It's a big deal. It So in our country, stackers and vertical folds are super popular. But I have heard guys mention this before, so... Okay. I've I've not recorded anybody talking about it. So this is good. But I've heard guys struggle with well, I'm just I'm still trying to get the planner from the grower. Still trying to get it. Still trying to get it. Still trying to get it. Yeah. He's trying to do post fall work. You're waiting because you got parts. But yeah, go ahead. Tell me a little bit about this retriever. Retriever trailer, um, it's a big deal. In fact, shout out to Troy McCallan. We 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 grabbed. It wasn't a retriever, but we got a used one from one of his previous employers. Um, it, it was made by somebody in Louisiana, I think. Anyways, long story short, these trailers are trailers where you can just back up to a three point mounted implement. In our case, planters almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we can handle up to like eighteen thousand pounds, forty five feet wide. Cool. And you just grab it. You back it up. You hit it. You grab it with three point. You lift it up, and then it rotates um, lengthwise with the trailer. Okay. And then you strap it down a little bit, and you take off. The track. The grower never has to start the tractor. We back it straight into the shop. We rotate it back. We set it down, and we go to work. Frankly, as long as the tractor's not connected, he really doesn't even need to be there. If you guys can get access to it with this trailer, he doesn't. He doesn't need to be there at all. Cool. And and we use that to deliver new planters. We can deliver planters a hundred miles away. We don't have to call anybody, right? I mean, That's I mean, you let the customer know, of course, whatever. But it's it's just like so efficient to be able to get it into the shop, get it out, deliver it, and the grower really doesn't have to do much. That's the other piece of it. You don't have the planter sitting there when you're done. That's right. Yeah, you deliver it and you invoice for it, and yeah, it's huge, huge. Perfect. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler.